Planet 9 is closer than we think. The orbital parameters of Planet 9 are now even more strange than we previously uh, assumed. So, so these, this is the update which is coming from you know, three years of calculation. <laughs> Welcome to Surely You're Joking. I'm your host, Dr. Kevin Peter Hickerson. Today I'm joined by a very special guest who I'll introduce in a second, but we're rejoined by one of my favorite guests from previous shows, uh, Dr. or Professor uh, Constantine Batigen. Oh, great to be back. Yeah, great to have you back. And we're here to give us some exciting news. Um, but before we do that, let me introduce our, our new guest today. Uh, he's been on, uh, he's probably best known for being the holographic doctor on Voyager. Um, he's also uh, now runs the Planetary Society's podcast, and we're actually recording from the Planetary Society. They have a really nice studio here. Um, and uh, recently he was on uh, The Orville, uh, did a nice cameo. Uh, welcome to the show, um, Robert Picardo. Thank you very much. Good to be here. My appearance on The Orville answers the philosophical question, why would you take an actor who already has big ears and put big ears on him? Why would you not? Uh, you're right. It's like, why would you not? Yeah, we're just taking it, uh, taking it one step further. That's right. right. Yeah. <laughs> I love that about this, like the whole Star Trek universe. It, I don't even know if we what you can call it, but <laughs> the collection of Star Trek-like things where you just put, like, uh, makeup on somebody yes, and then true. suddenly they're an alien. Like, all the diversity of life is various forms is on, of bumps. Is on uh, foreheads. and Yeah, we, uh, we used to call our guest star in Voyager the forehead of the week. That was uh, no comment on Mike Westmore's brilliant work on the show. <laughs> yeah, they, the, there was an episode that aired right after yours, and they really, I think Seth MacFarlane is just trying to lower the bar almost lower in terms of the makeup as almost like a for comic value because this time it was they didn't even have bumps they just had like silver paint oh, so they <laughs> just, they just like, spray painted yeah the, uh... yeah well it was they look kind of like silver tattoos oh. it was like yeah all right they're cool. aliens why, why not, not? <laughs> you know we're so used to yeah we just we just accept it and move on out it's, it's some... like it's a metaphor for earth or something <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean it sounds legit we've never seen an, what an alien looks like right yeah. so and well, probably you haven't that's right. <laughs> well, it could, yeah, they could just look like, you know, the man from Glad wrapped in uh, Reynolds wrap. Why not? Yeah, that's my expectation. I, I do all my work in Los Alamos, so it's just like a daily uh, occurrence in New Mexico. We see right. aliens Did you ever sneak the into the, in the, the old uh, warehouse and look at some of the stuff from the... Uh, uh, yeah. From the absolutely. crash? Absolutely. Cool. <laughs> no, be I've, cool. I've been to various nuclear facilities all over the world, and they all seem to have in common that everyone is convinced that's where they store the aliens. So I worked at this mine shaft, uh, or just not in mine shaft, a tunnel that's on mile underground in the middle of a mountain in Gran Sasso, Italy. And, uh, it, you know, because it's a secure facility... Uh, it has these giant door. I mean, it looks straight out of a movie, like these giant silver mm -hmm. doors open and there's armed guards at the front. And when we go in, it's, you know, it's just kind of boring. But everyone, like uh, most everyone in Italy is convinced that the Italian government stores their um, aliens there. I guess each government right. gets aliens. And I can see government. Italian and Italian uh, government aliens would be very well designed, I'm guessing. You know? Yeah. Even though. <laughs> it's no. a nice tunnel, actually. Well, listen, I, I understand we have an exciting uh, a new announcement that to look forward to today. Um, Constantine, first of all, I should thank Constantine again for being a guest star in the Planetary Post. It was a, it was a Halloween episode. I do remember that you dressed up as a vampire. Uh, I mean, that's, that, 
it was just my usual yeah. uh, professorial garb. <laughs> you have kind of a perma vampire yeah. thing. And then going, at the oh, end, you disappeared and turned into a bat and flew away. It was totally cool. You were a great guest, and I'm so happy to have you back in our studio again today. Well, it's it's awesome to be here, and great to see you again. And uh, I, I just I was lured here today with the idea that we're going to get a very exciting new announcement from you. But all you'll get yeah. is candy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like a Trump shutdown meeting um, where they hand out candy. Uh, all right, yeah. So can you give yeah. us like at least a hint? Uh, I don't think we want to just blurt out well, the announcement no, no now because then people will uh, tune out or something. Uh, so right, right. Um, <laughs> well, look. So. Three years ago, um, my colleague Mike Brown and I um, announced... The guy who killed Pluto. Yeah, He's that's m- right. most infamous for that. Um, yeah, we announced that we had found gravitational influence for the existence of a massive ninth planet in the solar system, well beyond Neptune. Uh, and the, the reason we know it's there is because of the orbits that it perturbs. So if you go beyond Neptune, there's this field. I know what perturbs mean, but what does perturbs yeah. mean? No, yeah. I know what perturbs mean. Yeah, perturbs, uh, you know, gravitational Wiggles, pulls. Right? Yeah, yeah, right. So if you go beyond Neptune, there's this field of icy debris, which is really expansive and goes out really far. And it's all composed of bodies that are really small. Uh, many of them are no bigger than Pasadena or Los Angeles. And really, it's the it's the cumulative kind of structure of the orbits that these small objects trace out that shows a kind of a gravitational one-way sign. They're all, um, if you go to far enough distances, they're all kind of corralled together into this, um, you know, group of eccentric orbits that all point in the same direction, lie in the same plane. And that's really um, the primary line of evidence for the existence of Planet Nine. Uh, there's no other way to explain that because right, you haven't structure. found it yet, right? That's right, but, and yet you, you're positive it's there. You've this discovered is... the influence that it exerts. Exactly, exactly. And I should say this is not uh, the first time a planet was discovered this way. Neptune was discovered in this manner as well. Uh, Neptune was calculated by Orban Le Verrier in 1846. It's, it's it sounds it's a lot like uh, you know like. Following something, somebody famous on Twitter, but they've blocked you. So you know their influence because you keep seeing like retweets, but it <laughs> says tweet unavailable. And you're like, I don't know what this, you know, it's either outrage or it was like, this is awesome. You're like, oh, man. It's a, it's, I would call Cardassian that a, yeah, it's me a, a meaningless time. analogy, but. Uh, <laughs> it sounds also like you have experience with yeah. this. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I, uh, I have a question. Um, yeah. The, uh, the. The influence that it exerts on the bodies in the Kuiper belt, mm-hmm. uh, does it also exert an influence on the other, the, the outer solar system planet's orbits? It sure does, uh, but over a very, very long time scale. So the solar system to leading order you can think of as a pancake, right? The planets are just kind of you can think of them as almost being rings of mass that are concentric. Can I think of it as like a crepe also? Uh, it depends. Huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> an, oval, an oval crepe. An oval crepe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can think of it as a creepy. Right? <laughs> um, yeah. So look, the as uh, because Planet Nine's uh, orbit is tilted with respect to the solar system crepe, right? Over time, uh, the uh, the gravitational pull that Planet Nine exerts on the bodies slowly tilts the entire 
plane of the solar system with respect to its starting condition. So it's like taking a table and uh, slowly lifting it on one side, right? The entire thing is kind of being uh, processing and tilting over. And that's partially why the sun appears to be inclined with respect to the planes of the orbits. The sun today is about six degrees off the, um, the kind of common plane of the solar system. And the reason for that is that the common plane of the planets has changed over the last four billion years. Is that entirely because of the influence of Planet Nine? We don't know for sure. Um, it it could be. Um, it depends on Planet Nine's actual real parameters, which is something we know pretty well, but don't know exactly. Right. In your new work, you uh, are you going to update that? Or? Yeah, that's right. So, so the new work uh, that, that this we're new work, by the way. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. But, uh, Constantine sent me this ninety-five page paper to to uh, brush up on before the. Yeah. So <laughs> I hope you read every word. Right. Uh, I'm only to chapter twelve. Well, <laughs> is this the new announcement that you're yeah. now going to speak of? The That's new, right. The new work? Yeah, yeah. So this 95-page paper that you got a preview of uh -huh. has not, as of this moment, been released. It has not been released right. yet. Mm -hmm. But but we um, will release this episode at the exact moment. Wow. That's right. Yeah. That's exciting. And you will be there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, just living in the future. That's that's right. Um, yeah, so look, uh, over the last three years, we've been doing uh, thousands of new computer simulations, theoretical models uh, aimed at understanding the parameters and the orbit of Planet Nine better. And of course, science is an iterative process. So, um, you know, you make an announcement, but you're not done. You keep going. You keep trying to figure out, are there things that I've missed? Are there new lines of evidence that I can use to kind of constrain the models better? And indeed, it turns out that three years ago, we overestimated uh, nearly all of the parameters of Planet Nine by about a factor of one and a half or two. Oh, right. So, so it's really Planet Four and a Half. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's right, right between. <laughs> there was a Planet Four and a Half there in was? like. Um, oh, the asteroid belt. Or yeah, something? the asteroid belt. Uh, there was some, some eighteen hundreds, like papers about how the asteroid belt was actually a planet that blew up. Um, it seemed like it. Is yeah. it? Is no, that true? It, no, it's not true. It just yeah. never formed there. Yeah, yeah. It's too Isn't that low, weird? Too low mass. Isn't that weird? Uh, it's kind of weird, but it's not. <laughs> it's not that weird actually. If you, the asteroid belt is is uh, has the structure that it has entirely because it's so low mass that there was not enough material there to to form a planet effectively. Hmm. But yeah, I mean, getting back to Planet Nine, we we. Three years ago, thought it was a 10 Earth mass object, which is like Neptune, right? So in the solar system, you have the Earth, which is at one Earth mass, of course, turns out. Um, there's Venus, which is also very close to one Earth mass. But the next planet over in terms of uh, mass and size is Neptune and Uranus that are seven Ice giants. That's right, the ice giants. And then next over is Saturn, which is 90, and Jupiter, which is 300. And what we're missing the missing link, so to speak, of the solar system is that me that medium range of planet, that five Earth mass object. And it turns out around other stars, other sun-like stars and even smaller stars, five Earth mass objects are extremely common. So it's yeah, been we a- We just had someone from yeah. TESS, uh, yeah. the TESS satellite. And uh, yeah, they, they have lots of solar systems like that with lots of heavy ones. Mm -hmm. And I guess they have a problem with the bias towards 
larger objects, but if, I think that's been kind of fixed out now. And yeah, so even accounting for the bias towards, lar- I mean, bigger objects are easier to detect. Mm-hmm. But even with that information there, there's just these five Earth mass objects that are extremely mm-hmm. common. So it turns out that the kind of standard planet that the galaxy produces is not a Jupiter, it's a five Earth mass object. So it's kind of weird that we that's don't awesome. have one I in think. the solar system. That's exactly what I want to live on. So this yeah. is, in a way, this the, this new discovery that you had overestimated approximately 100% the mass mm-hmm. makes it look even it fits in even more with our present solar system. Yeah, I think it, it's, uh, I mean, really, Planet 9 is the is the most normal planet uh, of the solar system, <laughs> like, galactically is, speaking. Doesn't it have a, I'm remembering from the last mm-hmm. time we spoke, it has a very eccentric orbit, doesn't yeah. it? And is the entire orbit of Planet 9 within the solar system as we know it, or does it go to the very outer reach of it? The no, orbit? it's all contained within the gravitational sphere of the solar system, but it entirely resides outside of the what's called the heliopause, the magnetic sphere of the solar system. So Planet 9 spends all of its time in interstellar space as far as radiation is concerned, mm-hmm. but is gravitationally tethered to the sun. Wow. That's, I almost understand that. <laughs> I mean, basically what it means is if you're chilling on Planet Nine, you'll get cancer in like an hour. Oh, yeah. Oh, really? Well, that's why I, I think oh, wow. tourism then is going to be low is, is when the time we'll, comes. We'll make it work. We'll make it work. <laughs> yeah, you just uh, – do you think it has a thick atmosphere? I think so. Yeah, um, so these, these five Earth mass objects that are found around other solar systems – tend to, or at least many of them, tend to have a rather expansive hydrogen-helium atmosphere. So a few percent of their mass is in the atmosphere, which is huge compared to, like, the Earth's atmosphere. The Earth's atmosphere is nothing um, by comparison. So, yeah, I think it has a pretty big atmosphere, and theoretical models actually suggest that the atmosphere should be very reflective um, because all of the— So it'll be easier to find, right? Yeah, it'll be easier to find. It's still a huge challenge, of course. It's uh-huh. very, very dim. It's right at the edge of what what's possible in terms of today's telescopic um, you know, abilities. And even then, you know, we had this uh, run on Mauna Kea, the Subaru telescope. Oh, yeah. I saw you posting, uh, like, pictures from, from Twitter and Instagram and stuff. Yeah, it was fun. By the way, follow this guy. He's fun to follow. Um, so when we when we finally launch the uh, somewhat delayed but highly anticipated James Webb, mm-hmm. will that are we likely to be able to see evidence, or will it not be? It will it not be examining that part of the. So space? James James Webb will be great for studying the properties of Planet Nine once we find it astronomically. Uh-huh. It's a useless tool for looking for something because it's such a zoomed in yeah it's basically like trying to find your target with a sniper rifle right you want to use binoculars first and then follow up so that's what james it sees such a narrow uh a narrow arc or whatever you call it of the 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 field of view is tiny and by comparison the telescope that we use subaru um, there is the field of view is something like six times bigger than the moon, right? right? So we can really oh, wow. take a big chunk, yeah. and that's why it's it's kind of the best and only instrument. What kind of scope is that? Is that a so it's a an eight meter? It's an yeah. eight meter. But is it spherical? 
because uh, it's so no, bit, okay. no, no. The lens is uh, is this big. Um, Sorry, I'm really obsessed with telescope optics, so that, that's, that's what I'm asking. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, <laughs> it's a anybody else is. I but. mean, it's one of these things that you kind of like have to see to appreciate the the design. So I, I used to work on Mauna Kea for mm -hmm. the now defunct uh, Caltech Millimeter Observatory, which has been replaced mm -hmm. by Sophia. And it's just kind of shuttered now. But we have to go toward the other telescopes. Right. Um, yeah. And size matters, yeah. right? Yeah. And Subaru okay. is really impressive. Um, it's, it's like a marvel of Japanese engineering. Yeah. And right. they actually let you visit, unlike Keck. So this, this, is, um, this is on one of the islands in Hawaii? Yeah, the big island. And it's, uh, and it, it's entirely, I didn't know this, it's manufactured uh, by Japan entirely, or the optics are? Uh, the Subaru so, telescope. Yeah, the, it's the the Subaru telescope is the Japanese national observatory. So Subaru in Japanese is Pleiades. Mm -hmm. I'm um, just gonna drop that fact. Damn oh, it! Yeah, well, I learned that recently. <laughs> <laughs> that's the that's the, the name of that of that star system. The yeah, and in fact, if you look at the Subaru logo on cars, oh, yeah, it's I actually the Pleiades. I noticed that. I've <laughs> yeah, noticed that before, and, and I never knew why. <laughs> <laughs> Can I take a moment to talk about uh, the Orville? <laughs> Because <laughs> I really loved that episode. Um, that show is, uh, it's, it's really funny because it, I feel like in a weird way, it's um, more like uh, the original Star Trek, almost more than the current Star Trek. Star. I've heard that from that a number of fans. They think that it, it, it uh, shares uh, more of the optimism of the original Star Trek series. And, uh, you know, I know that uh, Seth from reading... Uh, articles, uh, interviews with Seth, that he is not a big fan of the dystopian uh, science fiction where, you know, mm -hmm. where, where uh, the post-nuclear or, you know, we're all going to destroy ourselves or Earth has already been destroyed, that kind of stuff. He likes mm -hmm. the essential uh, optimistic vision of, of Gene Roddenberry's mm -hmm. original, you know, Right. A, a vision so for Star Trek. So how do you Trek. feel about that? You... Uh, I think it's cool. I think or there's you, a market. Are you, are you I required like it all. contractually no, 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 to be it... on the fence? No, no, no. no, no. I, I like... <laughs> and, and the irony is that the new Star Trek... I, I mean, I'm sure you've heard this. He's spoken about it, that he went to CBS and, and pitched them a Star Trek series. Did you know this? No, I didn't. Um, no. Seth MacFarlane went to CBS and and uh, took meetings, and I think they were probably a little scared because of, you know, his other work, Family Guy, et cetera. Uh, yeah, I did to, hear people were worried that it'd be Family Guy in space. Well, to trust, <laughs> to trust, perhaps to trust him with that, you know, with the, uh, the franchise. So he decided to go off and make his own show. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the irony, of course, is that, his, that a lot of fans feel that the Orville uh, is much more like the original Star Trek mm -hmm. vision, say, for example, than even Star Trek Discovery, which is a much kind of a darker... Uh, vision uh, than than its Star Trek uh, uh, predecessors. Yeah, so, I also I feel like they really because those the spinoffs were really aimed at hardcore fans. They got this really com like big complexity to it that mm -hmm. the originals didn't. Uh, and when I say the originals, I guess I mean uh, Next Generation and even more so the original. Like because those used to be like sort of simple, maybe funny, kind of obvious metaphors that were like contained in the thing. And now there's a lot more of the soap opera kind of component, which probably does do better with fans, but... Well, Gene's original pitch to the studio, to Desilu, was wagon train in space. So <laughs> that's what it was. It was, uh, it was that, that, you know, the, the, the uh, Enterprise was the wagon train, and they just, uh, every time they continued on their 
journey of exploration because obviously the wagon train was was going across our country at a time when, you know, we didn't know a whole heck of a lot of what they were going to encounter. And, uh, and, and at each new place, they had an adventure and carried their, you know, their ethics and their worldview and their passion for discovery with mm-hmm. them from one place to another. So uh, I agree that, uh, that the Orville, I understand why people find it more in the spirit of the original series, more so, for example, perhaps than, uh, than my iteration of Star Trek, uh, um, Star Trek Voyager. But Ours was the Gilligan's Island of Star Trek, as you <laughs> um, But, but uh, you know, Seth is a smart guy and, and literally the hardest working man in show business. I mean, he really does. The fact that he, that he, uh, that he is so involved with uh, the writing, that. the acting, the producing, the, and the directing of that show, and then still carrying on with all of his other, you know, incredibly successful animated series. He's, uh, he's a, really a force of nature. Yeah. I thought Kanye and was the was the most success, most hardest working person in show. Who was Kanye? No, no? Uh, well, oh. yeah, I mean that's just that's just if you listen to him. Um, uh, also, Seth did a a, uh, a guest appearance on the Planetary Post because all of the coolest people. Oh are on the planetary post. <laughs> just uh, for people listening, he gestured at Constantine, not, not at me. Uh, uh, well, you haven't <laughs> been on the planetary physics, post. Yeah. My, my yeah. study of planets ended about uh, five billion years ago because mm-hmm. I, I studied nuclear physics. So There's uh, a lot of nuclei in planets. I know, I know, yeah. but it's all done. That's what I mean. These are science jokes that I barely get, <laughs> yeah. folks. The part that nuclear physicists study the planetary components from about three minutes after the Big Bang to about five billion years ago, maybe four and a half. Um, Anywhere from, you know, making the hydrogen helium you're talking about and uh, all the way to making rocky material from from, uh, uh, neutron star mergers, as we know now. Although, uh, fun fact, I'll just throw this out there. Um, For a long time, we were worried that neutron stars... Uh, where the or we were worried that a supernova couldn't make enough gold to explain the amount of gold and other heavy elements, and everyone was really excited because these simulations studying neutron star mergers um, produced a lot of gold. Yeah. And now it's turned out now from observations from LIGO, now people are having a second panic attack because there still isn't enough gold. <laughs> it's predicted. I mean, there's more gold in, than we can figure out where I it mean, comes this from. This is why it's so expensive. Right? It was just like so little of it in the but, universe. Well, know? I know, but it, but it just, we can't figure out why there's so much. Yeah. I mean, and it's all hiding, right? I imagine all goes sure, to sure. the center. I mean, yeah. you know this better than me. Oh, right? totally. It yeah, probably yeah. just fall. I mean, there's just cores of. Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, when a planet is is in its early stages, it's, it's like a molten uh, fluid. So all the heavy stuff sinks to the center. So... Pl- plutonium, gold, all, all the heavies go right to the core. So, yeah, is, I mean... Is this... gold, again, because it's not my field, folks, is gold <laughs> one of the heaviest things in the in the uh, periodic table that is completely non-reactive, or are there other heavy things that are as, as neutral as gold is? Um, so, there's other ones that yeah. are as neutral. Give me one. Do you mean radioactive or... No, I mean, not, not, I mean, because gold is incredibly non-reactive right it doesn't oxidize it right doesn't... which is why we can get nuggets of it for sure uh-huh. like uh the reason you never really find like a uranium nugget 
I mean, you, you well, find ore. I'm from <laughs> Russia, and yes, you do. That's <laughs> <laughs> the money's made out of it. Right. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, even when miners go to mine uranium, they, you know, they find a sliver of uranium. It's still very diluted in that because uranium just sort of mixes with mm-hmm. its environment. Gold has this really nice, you know, tendency to sort of melt at a low temperature and then just collect into nice little flakes. And I, that's pretty much the only reason I think we have any of it up mm. at the surface is, sure. I don't know, it's been blasted out by, uh, you know, explosions. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. this is a fun story. I don't know if you heard about this, but they found, they think they found the oldest rock on Earth and it was found on the moon <laughs> by Apollo 14. Did you hear about this? No. So there's this very famous rock, and they've been studying it, and they now think they have found chunks of pieces of the Earth that are older than any other rock we've from ever an found. A- from a, um, an asteroid impact blown out to the yeah. moon? Or how yeah, well, so it, it, it has... So or I think it, it's part it, of the original... You know, the main theory of the formation of the moon is that, like, a large planet, I guess... Yeah, Mars-sized. Yeah, yeah. Mars-sized planet ejected a bunch of the... the um, the the like the molten mantle of mm-hmm. of and the crust of the earth. And so the moon is a large blob of the earth yeah, it, as it was formulating that was sort of yeah. Blown it's out. basically mm-hmm. like lava with mm-hmm. other sure. stuff. I mean, actually, one of the really remarkable things about the moon is that it's so isotopically similar to the earth, and and that's one of the di- <laughs> yeah difficult constraints to. Um, to kind of model out when you're when you're working out the theory of lunar formation, is that um, you know when you have got this other planet coming in and creating and smashing into the Earth, creating a disk of material out of which the moon forms. The moon, in the calculations, will typically form out of that material for of the of the impactor rather than the Earth itself. So you have to be careful. And there are these very interesting ideas about how to mix up. You know, you know what else you have to be careful about? Uh, a lot of conspiracy theorists point mm-hmm. to the fact that they're the same mm-hmm. as proof that there aren't real moon rocks. I just learned that recently. Oh. That that's a big, that's like a major part of moon, like fake moon landing. I, I don't understand. Well, so because the moon rocks look like earth rocks, the claim is that, the, you know, the moon landing didn't actually have any new uh-huh. rocks. See, if there were a bunch of alien rocks, then it would be harder to do that's that. That's the conspiracy. Yeah, I understand yeah, yeah. now. Okay. So. Uh, that's, but that's in this case. Better, that's, that conspiracy theory is better thought out than, than a lot of the, like, Nibiru is coming to destroy the well, Earth. So this is what's yeah. frustrating about conspiracy theories is people put the most – they put so much effort into it. It's frequently as good as the effort put into actual scientific theory. So I've been toying with this new strategy where I just try and get people to, you know, to disprove a conspiracy theory on their own, not mm-hmm. to, to, like, people don't like being lectured by experts because they feel like they're just being told what the expert wants them to think. And so, and, and then there's also those science, uh, scientific studies that psychologically, if you, tr- the more you try and explain someone that their conspiracy theory is wrong, the more they believe it, and they just make the conspiracy theory more, like, complicated. So a, a better strategy is just, like, to not, like, almost the opposite. Like, well, you prove, yeah. like, you prove that the, like, pretend you're trying to convince people that the that the that that we landed on the moon, and you're going to fake it. Go and, fake, you know, make that be your new conspiracy theory. Imagine being the person trying to do that. And what's great about that is that then you they start to learn a lot of things about what you'd have to do to fake on the landing on the moon. And you actually learn a lot about, <laughs> like, one of the things would be, like, uh, a great example is, like, okay, so let's say you're going to film the moon landing. 
are you going to put stars up? Right? Because this is one of the number one things that people say is like, well, there's obviously fake because there's no stars. It's much better the other way around. Like, okay, you're going to try and fake. You're going to try and convince the Soviet Union that we're on the moon. Do you put stars? And it's a lot easier to get people to think about it that way because then they then they have to go and study and they'll like, oh, we wouldn't actually see stars on a daytime shoot of the moon. And it's it's way more fun that way. <laughs> yeah. So I recommend it. <laughs> That's fun, yeah. The, the part of the, doing co- like comedy and science, I run into a lot of conspiracy theorists because I guess they're funny. <laughs> I don't know. Do you have that problem with the Planetary Society? Or is, uh, uh, conspiracy are... theorists? Uh, I, I can't say that I have. Or maybe they're just so convincing in their conspiracy theories that I just took them to be fact. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> they fooled me. I don't, I, don't, right. I, don't, I, don't, I don't get a lot of conspiracy theorists approaching me. In fact, I'm now welcoming all the conspiracy theorists <laughs> out there to contact me as soon as possible. I don't mean anything. I'm please do ignore what I just said. I don't mean that at all. Yeah, you're on Twitter, right? You could. Uh, oh, yeah, no, no, no. Please do not. <laughs> do not send conspiracy theories to me on Twitter. But yes, I am on Twitter. I am on Twitter, and you're right. welcome to follow me without your conspiracy right. theories. You're probably going to be just said that you're in on it. Is my okay. guess. Yeah, cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Part of the deep state, right here. Yeah. Right. <laughs> So you guys, uh, are you working on the light sale thing yourself? Or of course. Uh, this yeah. is a light sale for the benefit of your um, uh, your listening audience that may not know about it. And I encourage you to go to uh, www.planetary.org and read about light sale. It is the first entirely citizen-funded spacecraft. It will launch on the next uh, Falcon Heavy launch, the, f- the first one after the, uh, after the test launch. It'll be part of the payload. It is, a, uh, it is the size of uh, three sat cubes. Mm-hmm. Is it cube sats or sat cubes? I always get it cube back. Sats. Cube sats, I think. Cube sats. Yeah. Yes, yeah, I but, always but now I can start a competing company called Sat Cubes. Sat- <laughs> it, it's about the size <laughs> of a small loaf fine. of bread, and it will deploy a giant mylar-like sail. Although I don't know exactly what uh, what material the sail is made out of, and it will be a uh, it'll it'll uh, infinitely uh, accelerate. My mm-hmm. understanding, because uh, light, which has uh, uh, does not have any mass. It does have momentum. You got it. And it will. And the pressure of the sunlight will will um, will uh, motivate it and move it. Uh, and carry. It'll carry a very small instrument package, as I understand, and a little and a little solar a uh, little solar battery. And it's just going to go. And we had a test launch that was very successful. So the entire uh, world is waiting um, for the uh, for the launch of the next. Uh, Falcon Heavy, and we will, and, and uh, all of the people that supported uh, LightSail, I thank them, and uh, I know they're, they can't wait to see the first citizen-funded spacecraft uh, so make cool. it. Yeah, that's so cool. That's awesome. Very cool. Yeah. It's well, and we have other things like that at the Planetary Society. We, we, uh, we are obviously, our, our main function is to engage the public and, and interest them in the future of, uh, in supporting space science at, and exploration, but but also we, uh, we create our own things like LightSail and other things to go on um, uh, future missions and have gone on past missions. It's because of Bill Nye that we actually have a sundial on one of the uh, first, uh, second generation of the Mars rovers. That's awesome. And uh, so anyway, it's a, it's a very cool organization. And, I, and my, my mission really is to engage science fiction fans and to, 
to uh, teach them if they don't already know that if you love science fiction, by definition, you love science as well. So I try to welcome all of the people that love watching Star Trek to to get engaged and join the Planetary Society. Absolutely. And generically, I mean, speaking from kind of like the academic side of doing planetary science, the Planetary Society does amazing work. I mean, the the lobbying um, to Congress, I mean, we would be uh, we would be making far less progress without the planetary society. So I can only say the the most high praise. That's uh, we appreciate that. I know when I saw uh, the principal investigator of New Horizons, Alan Stern, uh, speak, he gave huge credit to the planetary society for mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. keeping that mission alive when it looked like it might not, you know, it might not get funded and it might never happen. So that makes us very proud to hear that our advocacy and the advocacy of our members and, you know, signing petitions and supporting and, and writing to their congressperson and saying, please support NASA and, and this mission and that mission, which is in danger of cancellation. And, and that makes us very proud. Speaking of New Horizons, uh, yeah. you, you're telling me a little uh, anecdote about your, when you guys went to Hawaii to observe, mm-hmm. you, you said you ran into like a bottleneck from Hawaii, something like the data is trapped Oh, <laughs> in Hawaii yeah, on yeah. Mauna Kea, or maybe at the the station. Well, the now, but now it's now it's in Japan actually. Ah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so, so it's it's a very complicated system where the data from the telescope has to first get piped to Japan, where it gets reduced. So, uh, just to give you a scale, um, each, I, that's a really long pipe. I mean, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah. So each image that you take, each exposure. It's about 90 seconds, right? And you capture about five gigabytes or so of data. Mm-hmm. And, but you're observing for a week, right? Just 90 seconds at a time. And, and so at the end of the day, you have just an, just an astonishing amount of data that you then have to go pipe to some computers, which then analyze and reduce it into a workable uh, format. So we, we actually haven't seen the full data set. And this is actually not my uh, wheelhouse. I'm more on the theory side. It's Mike who is the data person out of the two of us. <laughs> but it'd be funny if he's just bullshitting <laughs> the whole time. He's like, no, I just haven't loaded it up. Yeah, <laughs> it would take like... him five minutes. <laughs> I'm waiting for you to finish your stuff. Yeah. Before. <laughs> anyway, the reason I thought that, that anecdote was funny is it's like, here we are on Earth, right? And you mm-hmm. got this, you've got all this great you know, telescope data, which is basically all a probe is, right? It's a yep. telescope and a transmitter for the most... I mean, I know there's other stuff on there. But for the most part, most distant probes is like you have a really nice camera, which nowadays, you know, even a cell phone camera is pretty good. And then, uh, you know, you just need to get it back to Earth. And I think it's so fun. It, it was such a good illustration of that how difficult mm-hmm. that is that here you, you have pictures you took on Earth, in Hawaii, and then, like, that's hard to get from, like, a major technical institution to, to Caltech. Yeah. Like, just because there's an ocean away. And it's sure. like, okay, now imagine that's 5 billion miles <laughs> instead of the 5,000 miles that's Hawaii. That's, uh, that's right. I th- yeah. If I did the math right, that's 1 million times the distance. And that's still how hard it is to get that information back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's astonishing, right, that the communication works at all, right? To me, it's mm-hmm. just kind of astonishing that the deep space network works. So the at amount all. of data that you collected, how many days were you there at the telescope in Hawaii? We were there sort of six and, nights. Yeah. So yeah. that amount of data, how long will it take you to sift through all of it? Um, 
so the first pass is done by a computer algorithm, uh, which what's its name? The computer algorithm. Yeah. Al. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, actually, the one of them, um, one of them is called Sex Tractor. Wow. Sex Tractor. Yeah. And um, what is that algorithm searching it's, for? It's it's just it's it's a source extractor, oh. but the S is abbreviated. So yeah. uh, whenever people talk about it, um, mm-hmm. right? People kind of sometimes try to refer it to it as. S S extractor, right. but like whenever trying, the, yeah. it's it's like when they say yeah. planet Uranus, yes. yeah, right. yes. but like whenever somebody is is giving a talk or something, right. they're just like and then we apply S- the sex tractor. Sex tractor yeah. sounds like a like a Tinder algorithm. <laughs> yeah, that's that's right. it does. <laughs> yeah, um, but but really, you're not going to get that domain name. It's no. it's long gone. <laughs> Maybe a dot dot. Really? Like org or dot, yeah. dot biz. I think, I think, I think the next time we do a Halloween episode of the Planetary Post, uh-huh. you should be the sex tractor. Well, uh, <laughs> no comment. We'll right. talk about this after the show. <laughs> yeah, but look, I mean, so it's it's a um, it's a pretty sophisticated um, sophisticated procedure. At the end of the day, you want to be left with a number of candidates, right, on the images that you can shift through by hands. That means thousands of images, right? Realistically, it's okay to click through thousands of images. And that's literally all I do all day. (laughs) Except it's like kitchens and memes. Yeah, no. no. (laughs) It's just thousands of swipes. (laughs) It's like, oh, another adorable cat. Not Um, a planet. Yeah, but the, the way you... So the astonishing thing is that the way you look for a distant planet in the solar system fundamentally is really easy. All you do is you oh, take yeah. a picture, okay, and then you come back the next night and you take the same picture, and then the third night and you take the same picture after that. And all these stars that are uh, just random stars in the galaxies stay glued to the sky. They don't move at all. And because the Earth is moving by what's called parallax, there's a planet uh, in the solar system in that image, right? That is slowly making its way across the night sky. It's the same principle as when you're driving a car and you look out the window and, you know, trees are going by you apparently faster than the mountains, right? And, and so it's just that. Before they had uh, 3D video games, they had this, like, 2.5D kind of thing mm-hmm. where, like, the foreground would move at one speed. Sure. Fun fact. Yeah. <laughs> this is like the Mega Man video. Right, yeah, exactly, yeah. 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 Now we're, we've gone full 3D. Yeah. Um, so... What's your going to be your official announcement? I think we've gotten to the point where you can lay it on us. Yeah, look, uh, what's, Planet what's, Nine is closer than we think, right? So if I was to summarize it, it's it's on a smaller orbit than previously um, previously thought, and it's a smaller object than previously thought. Weirdly, those two things nicely cancel out, such that it's only a little bit brighter on the night sky than we previously assumed, but the orbital parameters of Planet Nine are now even more strange than we previously uh, assumed. It's a standard galactic-looking super-Earth, and its orbital period is about 10,000 years around the sun, uh, maybe even a little bit less. So so these this is the update, which is coming from you know three years of calculation. Fun fact, the Earth goes one light year in 10,000 years. So 
Yeah. So oh, every yeah, that time, makes sense, actually, yeah, yeah, it's kind of it's it's a fun little number. Two pi times ten thousand. Sure. Uh, yeah. AU is a is a light year. Two pi AU. So that this is and <clears throat> this new these new deductions are mm-hmm. from three years of analyzing all of the data that you've collected through observation from this one telescope or from different telescopes? No, it's it's from comparing uh, data which. Um, actually, at the end of the day, it's, it's actually none of the data that we collected. It's data that has, number one, surfaced from other groups that other groups have put out. But most of the effort went into, on our end at least, not didn't go into like looking at you know, the new objects themselves, but rather deducing new computer models and comparing them to the new data set. This is like Monte Carlo stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is there going to be a point where, like, citizen scientists can, uh, like, sign up to either help sift through images or or run simulations? Is um, that something you guys yeah, have talked about? Maybe we, the planetary society well, members. Well, we do it. that's the well, the one of our um, one of our planetary uh, sp- you know uh, special projects is the uh, the um, neo shoemaker neo shoemaker grants mm-hmm. that provide uh, funding for amateur astronomers all over the world so that they can, and, and a lot of their, the data that they collect is, you know, is sent to JPL or other NASA facilities and is actually used. Uh, mm-hmm. This, I, when I interviewed uh, Dr. Amy Meinzer, who is, uh, you know, whose job it is to, uh, to find out if we're gonna, if Earth is going to be impacted by an asteroid and then call the president on the hotline and say, we got a problem. Washington, but uh, she she said that that the data, but from amateur astronomers is uh, that that are supported by the Planetary Society, actually awesome. is is used in her in her work. So that's just another cool thing we do at the Planetary Society. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think uh, this has been really interesting. It's been that's a lot of fun. Yeah. I do you guys before we close. Do you have yeah. any questions on what it's like being a twenty fourth century? Um, you know, uh, the the absolute you know compendium of everything we know about medicine in the 24th century. I mean, when you look at me and you go, this guy embodies everything we know about 20th, 20th you know, 4th yeah, century uh, medicine, you got to wonder, you know, what happened to Rogaine and different things that didn't, <laughs> that didn't turn out that we thought were <laughs> tremendous medical advances back uh, 300 years ago. But if you have any questions about medicine uh, in the future, now is your time. Okay, I do. How many people make hologram jokes? All the time. Okay, I get a lot I of hologram In jokes. In fact, I, was, yeah. I thought no. we could... Yeah, if we anybody tries to stick their arm through me again, we, you're going to die. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I have infinity questions, but none of them are appropriate. Okay. So, All right. Is this infinity questions is like that time you told me you were, we, you were six billion percent sure or something like that, yeah. that Planet Nine would be discovered by now. Now I'm like yeah. seven billion. It's a one percent per person on Earth. I, 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 one, of the, one of the oddest things about, uh, about uh, playing a hologram, playing an artificial intelligence that was designed for a specific purses, uh, purpose of emergency medical care, was that I would find out the writers would think it was funny to introduce some new uh, capability that I had that I, oh. as an actor, wasn't aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, when we introduced in one episode the EMH, the Emergency Medical Hologram Mach 2, played by Andy Dick, um, <laughs> I, was, uh, uh, I was discussing with him how great it was to have uh, a portable mobile emitter so that I, could, I didn't have to simply exist in the holographic environment of the medical bay. I could, with my portable emitter, I could go anywhere on the ship. I could fraternize with the other crew members. Why, I, I'd even had sexual experiences. 
So I read this in the upcoming script, and I call the producers. I say, wait a minute, guys. Um, I'm an emergency medical hologram. We've seen me from the moment I'm first activated. We've been tracking my development and uh, any expansions in my program. I said, when did this happen? How did I? I mean, why would you give an emergency medical hologram? Why would you make them? <laughs> what kind of emergency medical procedures are you envisioning here? Why would you give them, uh, you know, uh, make them anatomically correct? And they said, come on, it's just a joke. And I thought, that's it? <laughs> Star Trek has this reputation for, like, taking real science and extending it. And now you're just saying we're going for a cheap laugh here because – the and, and they said, yeah, basically that was it. So You I know, that's – that was a – that's a thing I think that since Voyager and other ones, it's that's the part that's part of the thing I think's been going away, and that's one of the things the Orville brought back, which is just just the whimsical, yeah, just occasionally like yeah, we can we a can little make whimsy, a joke. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't have to be all I understand like we're being we're being attacked or something, you right? Know, it's and like, I and you're absolutely right. It's I mean, like I, at the end of the day, we're gonna close the story with a joke. It's funny. There's like some sort of moral <laughs> to it or something, and and somehow like that ended up coming out really. Um, you know, really well. It's also just, it's, it's funny how I do science consulting on the side and I, you know, it's not surprising Seth would have a good science consulting because he, you know, he, he made Cosmos and everything, but the science consulting on that show is really good. Like when they say stuff about particles or black holes or it is always you're talking about the orbital yeah yeah that, the orbital. it's amazing. And that's it's another like, thing it has in common with, with Star Trek because right. Star Trek always tried to talk about, you know, I, yesterday I was in, when I was uh, interviewing for the Planetary Post, uh, a, a, a guy who works for NASA who's an expert in artificial intelligence, when he was talking about neural network, I'm going, wait a minute, wait a minute. I said neural network at least a thousand times uh, on Star Trek 20 years ago, and I just thought it was baloney we made up. And he goes, no, he's explaining to me that, that you know, I didn't know that that was uh, that what that meant in ter- in, in in the world of, of uh, artificial intelligence. So there's there's a million terms. I was talking, you know, nanoprobes and nanotechnology all the time. Mm-hmm. And so much of that is has come to pass in the intervening years. And the show's only, you well, know, only right. premiered so, 20 years ago. That's I love, the reason I love science consulting is because most people, I mean, when it happens in a show is, you know, most people aren't going to know whether it's right or not. But there's two really important things. Like one is, there's always, you know, there's kids out there, like if I watch science fiction, it mattered to me. I knew as a kid if it was real or not because I was so interested and I was trying to be a scientist. But so it's it's like letting down those kids to not have it be right. But also I've noticed um, what's really interesting is like people can, uh, they can like smell a phony. You know, like if the if somebody makes a mistake, even if they don't know anything about it, sometimes it like, it jumps out at them. It's really weird. <laughs> I mean, it's a, and and, you know, Star Trek and, and Thorville, just, they, they do that really well. So today on this podcast, we not only got teased with an exciting new discovery <laughs> about Planet Nine, we also found out that the reason the Doctor on Voyager was anatomically correct was just a writer's joke. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you very much for being on the show, uh, Robert Picardo. Uh, oh, one more thing. Uh, do you get Picard, Picardo jokes? I get a lot That's of Picard. In of fact, since I mentioned Andy <laughs> Dick, I might as well uh, sure, tell you the story. Drop. Come on, Andy yeah. Dick, uh, the, the day I met him on the set, he goes, hey, your name Picardo is so close to Picard. You get teased about that a lot. I said, wait a minute. Your name is Andy Dick, and you're going to make fun of mine? <laughs> 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 All right. Thanks for being on the show, you guys. Oh, thanks so much. Pleasure.